Well, sorry for the delay. Not much of one, but some. We're trying to reconcile Sermon Audio and Facebook still. And hopefully it all works. Eventually it will. I have faith. So, let's see. I should say the March 14th uh, lecture is in doubt because I have this nephrolithotomy possibility, but I'm hoping that it is restricted to an extracorporeal shockwave, lithotripsy. Too many H's and S's in all those words for me. I go in on the 12th for whatever it is that they suggest, and the recovery time for the easiest one will be anywhere from two to four days. So if I go in on Friday, obviously I might still be hospitalized on Sunday. So we thought that uh, highly unlikely that I'll make the 14th, I guess is what I'm saying. We'll see, but it's highly unlikely. And I have to have a stent put in again. Oh, gosh. I don't even know what to say about those things. Uh, the ureter, ure, ureteral stent. So it's a long tube they stick in there, and I have to suffer with it for at least seven days, maybe ten days. And it is not much fun. So hopefully that goes well, and we're back in operation by the 21st. Oh, I should say really fast, this came today. And this, I got uh, uh, Daniel from Texas sent me Larkin's Dispensational Truth. You can never have enough Clarence Larkin. Uh, so that is wonderful. And, of course, uh, this was a letter from Jacob uh, from Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. A very interesting and a wonderful letter. He, his um, He's interested in the consistency of the speed of light. He didn't phrase it that way, but that's what he would like me to discuss, is the velocity of light and whether or not it's consistent and whether or not we see all spectrums of light, or do we only see one aspect of the speed of light? How many aspects or facets does it have? And then uh, the effect of entropy on the speed of light. And, of course, from there we're going to end up with consciousness and free will. Uh, as you know, the physics community believes mostly overwhelmingly that there is no free will. Uh, and uh, that, of course, has tremendous, uh, uh, how do I say it, resistance. Okay, here we go. Where do we put the glasses? Got my pen, holy dry erase marker, and off we are. March the 7th, look at the time, March the 7th, 2021, lecture discussion number 130 on the book of Joel. Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes, Job, 1 Kings 13, and 2 Kings 23. Okay, I'm going to retreat somewhat this week, a strategic withdrawal, if you prefer. In no way does this imply that we have been routed on the field of battle, overrun by opposing forces. We're not fleeing in hysteria. We're not stampeding in panic. We're not discarding all our weapons and stripping off our uniforms. Uh, consider it rather a scheduled disengagement, if you wish, the military uh, metaphors, a, a regrouping of forces. It's necessary uh, in order to have the, to muster the counteroffensive, and as usual, the element of surprise will be our ally. 
The opposition is going to be confounded once again, dazzled perhaps, certainly bewildered by our cliffside army. Uh, that may not be complimentary, but uh, nonetheless, it has been the nature of this little operation of ours now for almost 25 years. And some will say, no, no, Cliffside didn't begin until 1998, and that, of course, is true, Cliffside as an entity, but prior to that, I operated many years prior. So I usually say about 25 years, just to kind of put it in the middle. Anyway, I got lots of subjects to revisit and many others to introduce and to integrate into where we have been. Uh, and with respect to the latter, today is the day that we have decided, by we I mean me, we have decided to discuss Mond. It, it is so interesting that I get a letter like this from Jacob from Coeur d'Alene on the Sunday. And of course, we it probably came earlier, but we picked the mail up on Sundays now. Uh, but uh, today's the day that I'm going to discuss Mond. And believe it or not, and Jacob is evidence of that, it's one of the top ten requested cliffside subjects, uh, if not in the top five. And of course, I'm always requesting it, so that uh, kind of skews the dynamic there, the, the representation. Mond is an acronym. It means um, Modified Newtonian Dynamics or modified gravity theory. You'll see it in either one, but mostly modified Newtonian dynamics. As you know, the conventional astrophysics dark matter hypothesis has been, that, uh, uh, it's been proposed as a solution to what's considered in astrophysics the missing mass problem. In other words, the visible mass in galaxies is deficient. There's not enough visible mass. It's incapable of accounting for the stellar rotational velocities, our accelerations. That won't mean anything to you. Consider this an introduction to Mond. And so I'm just getting you familiar with what's going on at a very shallow level. Put it in a more simplified form, hopefully. At the velocities that the stars and the galactic dust and the materials of the galaxies are rotating, they should have long ago been dispersed especially based on an ancient creationary model. They should have been flung off into oblivion, and of course that's not happened. So the astrophysics community proposed dark matter. They said we must have uh, dark planets at first. When you start to study um, the orbit of Mercury, they thought there was a dark planet that no one could see that was gravitationally affecting Mercury. Well, they think there's still possibly dark bodies out there. But they came up with eventually dark matter, and they said that it is invisible, it's unseeable, it's undetectable dark stuff. And, and it holds the gavit, gravit, I'm sorry, it holds the galaxies together. It's this gravitational force that accounts for the missing mass. Uh, and it's other than the visible baryonic mass of the galaxy. Baryonic mass is the cumulative gravitational mass of the galactic stars, the mass, if, or the matter, if you will, and the gases that accompany, and any other debris. So that's the baryonic uh, uh, mass. 
Now, I've discussed this before, and most of you slept soundly through it when I did, and there's nothing wrong with that. I'm expecting that again today. But but I am fascinated, as you know, by people who think there is an invisible, unseen, undetectable force that is holding everything together. And I absolutely agree. There's theological implications that they haven't even considered. And obviously their dark matter concept is theoretical. Duh, it's invisible, it's unseen, and it's undetectable. And I know that they have computer-generated dark, I'm sorry, a black hole renditions now. Now, that's computer-generated. By definition, you cannot take a photograph of a black hole. It's a singularity by their definition, and I don't believe necessarily that it is a singularity. I've discussed that before, which means I don't think it creates infinite gravity because infinity has theological implications. But let's set it all aside and pretend it's all real. But it is right now obviously theoretical, and essentially because it's theoretical, it's non-falsifiable. There's nothing you can do to falsify it because it can always adjust much like all the other aspects of... Uh, and these are theological concepts. Now, they'll argue that it isn't, but they are. They will say that it, this is an explanation that they believe is a natural occurrence or an evolutionary occurrence or just some kind of happenstance occurrence. But uh, that is in conflict with the theological. So it is a rebuttal, if you will. Uh, rebuttal is not a good word. It's a, it's a contrapositive to a theological position. And it's been conceived in order to explain these galactic gravitational behaviors. And Mond is likewise, in a sense, in other words, it has been constructed as an alternative to dark matter. And everyone in the physics communities agrees that gal galaxies are not at present obeying the laws of physics. And the laws of physics are ubiquitous. In other words, they're universal throughout all the galaxies, throughout all of creation. That's one of the great proofs that it is, uh, it is an intelligent agency that has done this. But nonetheless... It's not happening as we, as we, not I, but as the physicists believe it should be occurring. And thus the controversy has collapsed into two options. Mond is one option, and the other, of course, option two, is dark matter. The unseen, undetectable, invisible gravitational mass that is holding these galactic orbits. Dark stuff. So, Newtonian laws of physics do not apply to gravities. I'm sorry. <laughs> to galaxies. Galactic orbits. Mond assumes that there is a, a way to modify Newtonian dynamics. Dark matter, of course, again, a construction. Uh, something that is hoped for, that is unseen, undetectable, and is unobserved, invisible, all of that. But hoped for, it's inferred. They had to come up with some kind of mass that had gravitational impact, so they came up with dark matter. Now, how arbitrary it is, you can decide. Mond says, no, Newtonian physics, though it doesn't apply at present, it can be adjusted. So it's called modified or adjusted Newtonian dynamics. And so, it, specifically, this gets into centripetal, pedal, centripetal. 
central pedal acceleration. The dark matter hypothesis, however, even though Mond, I think, has tremendous potential, the dark matter hypothesis prevails. Uh, there's hardly anybody. Mond has its uh, advocates, and the advocacy is, like I said, uh, how do I put it? It is viable. It has its issues. It can't account for all of the gravitational phenomenon, but it can reduce it to the place where it is significantly affected. But again, the dark matter hypothesis is in charge today in physics. It's an inferred dark matter density. It's quite popular with the atheism. And the atheism is uh, atheistic uh, aspects, or if you will, atheistic processes uh, dominate the astrophysics field. Mond sometimes characterized as Newton's revenge because Newton was disqualified, they believed, by relativistic Einsteinian theory. But Mond is now referred to many times as Newton's revenge. It requires... It requires that Newtonian precepts be adjusted, modified, for low acceleration environments. So to rephrase this, current Newtonian calculations are applicable to high acceleration systems. Our solar system, for example, or any other high acceleration system. Now, high is a relative term. But they need to be modified. Newtonian uh, theory or Newtonian classic physics uh, needs to be modified for very low acceleration conditions. So the adjustment is mathematical. That appeals to me. There will always be math, as you know. And so the, the adjustment is made with the ratio of the centripetal acceleration of the outer formations of galaxies because they are low acceleration conditions. Essentially, the proportionality is adjusted to the square of the centripetal acceleration and not to the centripetal acceleration by and of itself. So all I'm doing is I'm squaring this. And when that happens, then very nicely, it's not unlike Dirac's equation. We started to get into Dirac's equation, and we'll go back to it. It's very important. Dirac decided that he needed four rotations instead of two in order to reconcile with general relativity, and he just did it on his own, and out of that came, because he wanted to resolve the equation, right? Out of that came matter and antimatter, and positrons, and all of this stuff. And they, they insist that they have seen antimatter and created antimatter. Ah, that's fascinatingly uh, up in, how do I put it? Everyone has to agree in order to get the, get the, the uh, how do I put it? The financial aspect, not aspect, the financial reward. If you never got antimatter, you're never going to get paid for it. Does that make sense? So we have to get antimatter. How much antimatter did we really get? It's a lot like gravitational waves. It's a lot like the the uh, computer-generated image of a black hole. All of that stuff. 
is financially, uh, the underpinnings are the income that is derived from it. And don't ever set that aside. Politics and finances control science today. That's an unfortunate thing, but it is what, what we have. Okay, so this is going to require a basic understanding of central pedal acceleration and the mathematics of determining central pedal uh, acceleration. You know centrifuges. You know the washing machine goes round and round and the water goes out in a dry and all. You, you understand all of that. That's what we're talking about is acceleration rotation. Now, some are going to argue that mon and dark matter, and justifiably so, dark matter inference, share the same whimsical parentage. Both proposed solutions from romantic conceptions, they will say. And obviously, I consider that to be applicable here. Uh, it's certainly dark matter. The dark matter hypothesis resides in the domain of the fudge factor. We have a problem. We create something. It solves the problem. It must be true. We will all say, bovinely shake our heads that it's all true, and no one will ever question it. That's why I love Newton's revenge. Mond is a mathematical proposition. Ooh, there will always be math. And it's also a, uh, non-relativistic, so it's anti-Einsteinian. Mond is Newtonian, pro-Newtonian. You know my, my affinity for Isaac Newton. Isaac Newton was astonishing in my mind. General relativity, as I said last week, cannot be true. It isn't true. We, everyone knows it's not true. But they present it as if it is true. But everyone knows it's not. Everyone realizes it's in conflict with quantum physics and that eventually quantum gravity is going to ruin general relativity. Everyone knows that. But you'll never see it unless you delve deep into the system. Max Planck began with the basic belief that in the end, when you get down to the end of your scientific capability and discovery, everything will be dependent on consciousness. That's why I like this letter so much. Jacob is, wants to get into consciousness and billions of years. And that's one of my favorite topics, as you know. So let's just read a couple of verses really fast. I've read them a lot, but I'm going to read them just a little bit differently because of different translations. And the uh, first one, of course, is Colossians 1.15. He, this is Christ, is the image of the invisible undetectable, unseen God. How's that for changing it slightly, huh? The firstborn over all of creation, for by him all things were created and that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Let me change that slightly. In him all things hold together. This is in scripture this is called the supremacy or the preeminence of Christ. So the Bible says there is an unseen, undetectable, invisible mass 
that is holding all things together. And that person, it's a person, it's an intelligence. And it is Christ. That's what the Bible says. I find that very interesting. Again, dark matter is in conflict with that and therefore it is a theological view. It has been constructed because it's got, it is, they it constructed it in order to, to combat 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, Colossians 1, 15 through 17. Now we'll go to Hebrews 1, 3. If I can get my fingers to work. You're not supposed to lick your fingers nowadays, are you? Okay. Hebrews 1, 3. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. So there are two verses. Both of them say that the undetectable, invisible, the gravitational mass that no one can find. Bible says that that is, that is creator God. That's what Newton said. He saw gravity as intelligence. That is what Planck saw. When you get to the bottom of gravitational phenomena, you find consciousness. Upholding all things, confirming, supporting, sustaining, maintain it. That's the language of Christ in Son. It says that God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us in Son. In other words, he says Son is a language. Christ is a language. He's using the language of Christ to tell us things that are true. In these last times, these last times is the church age, the last 2,000 years. That's how he defines last. Yes, sir. Where, where is that again? Hebrews 1, uh, 1 through 3. 1 through 3, thank you. Okay. So all things consist. That means all things are located. All things stand firm. All things stand still. All things exist in Christ. And he holds and confirms. He upholds them. He sustains them. And it is part of being in sun. It's the language. So for those of you who remain awake, how many have I got? I got one. <laughs> one and a half? <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, Mond is going to lead us to, to Max Planck. It's going to read, lead us away from determinism. And you will find thousands of physicists who can confidently insist that free will is an illusion. And that's going to connect here because relativism says there is no free will. Mond says there is. Newton and Einstein are battling over free will ultimately. And that's why it is a theological battle and not what everyone seems to think it is. Keep in mind, this is Psalms 10, and I should read Psalms 10 again. Uh, Psalms 10 is amazing. So, let's just go to 10.6. What it's talking about here is the ones who do not believe that there is any free will. So 10.6 of Psalms is talking about free will, or discussing free will. He has said in his heart, I shall not be moved. This is talking about Satan. Satan is the subject. Satan has said in his heart, I shall not be moved. I shall never be in adversity. His mouth is full of cursing and deceit and oppression. 
Under his tongue is trouble and iniquity. He has said in his heart, God has forgotten. He hides his face. He will never see. Why do the wicked renounce God? He has said in his heart, you will not require an account. I shall never be in adversity. There is no hell. There is no judgment. Why does he say that? Because the lie of Satan says there is no accountability. There is no judgment. There is no, uh, there is no condemnation because there is no free will. So I look at which one is the no free will one. This one is the no free will one. This is the relativistic one. And this is the free will one. And so that is a Psalm 10 issue. And there we go. It's Psalm 10, 1, as you know, begins with, Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide in times of trouble? That's because it is a free will canopy. Okay. Adversity and accountability, the judgment, are bedrock, they're scriptural foundations, and they oppose the satanic Genesis 3-4 lie and that all beings have no will, therefore they cannot be held into account. That's where we begin, Genesis 3-4, right? Therefore, it's necessary for the church and for Christians and for Christian schools, and you know I taught in the Christian schools, they've got to be fluent, and they're not. I promise you today, there's a out of the... How many Christian churches are... Oh, let me read this. This is really fantastic. I, 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 I read it to Lori. Jacob says this. Greetings. My name is Jacob. I reside in beautiful Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. I first discovered your intriguing lectures by means of sermon audio, Dave. How's that, huh? This keeps happening, doesn't it? And try to work at least one in to each uh, not-so-busy day. So that's how he starts. He says, Coeur d'Alene, he attends several different churches in Coeur d'Alene. He said, this is easily accomplished in my God-fearing community, which last time I checked had some 54 churches but only four liquor stores. So in case we're wondering where we're moving to at some point, it looks like it's Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Some pastors are better than others, but I did notice one thing which struck me as peculiar. Many of them referenced the same topics, chapters, and verses, and even employed some of the same verbiage in their sermons. This leads me to believe that either an angel of the Lord is going locally from door to rectory to bedstead, or that they are all relying on some published guide for pastors, and I know which one it is, don't I? www.desperatepastor.com he said, nothing wrong with the use of teaching aids to help to effectively spread the word, but it is clear to me that you have never had the need to lean on such. And that is really a wonderful compliment. I just was delighted to read it. There's something else he says to hear. Uh, I know you have lots to think about, being the most brilliant and unique and good-looking pastor on Sermon Audio. I put the last part in there. That's, that's not there. I have a mirror. Good grief. But you are the only one I would dare ask such questions. And that's the questions that I outlined in the beginning. Also, I believe the only one who may be able to come up with suitable answers. Um, and so he says other in another place, and I don't want to take up more time. But this is a church that discusses these subjects, as you know. Not just because I was I grew up with them. Mond was when I was in studying physics for the railroad. 
uh, in the 19... Well, it came up in the early 80s, I believe. But uh, we were familiar with it uh, when I was a young man. Same for dark matter. All of it, none of it is new. Okay, where am I? i got to find my place. I think it's necessary for the church to become powerfully fluent. And that's especially true for these, your children. If you've got children going to schools, I don't care if it's Christian schools, they're going to get slaughtered. And you have to fight. Which is why we will learn differential equations. Because we're going to learn centripetal uh, pedal acceleration squared. So, everyone cheer yay mond. Yes, listen to the cheering. Okay, uh, what's next? Believe it or not, Mary Ann from Arkansas wrote me a letter. You remember, she wanted to know about the dust of the earth question. We barely have begun it so far, essentially, and and hopefully I've presented a, a cogent introduction to it, uh, establishing that Jesus God, all one word, Acts 2, the judge, the Ancient of Days, is putting forth his reply. Rebuttal will work here. He's, his counter-argument. He's putting forth that to the claims of Satan and the falling angels of Satan. That's what he is doing with the dust of the earth issue that Marianne wanted to know. And we're going to have to accumulate all passages where Christ does this, where he actually speaks to the lie of Satan of Genesis 3-4 and Ezekiel 28-16. And the formation of the body of Adam from the dust, as Marianne has, has figured out, is absolutely central if not the foundational element. Now, I don't think it is the foundational element, but you can make the comment or you can make the case that it is. That when he made that body, he was referring to Ezekiel 28.16 and Isaiah 14. As it, and also, uh, along with that, is this fantastic declaration in Genesis 1.26 that Adam is in the image of God and the likeness of God. Made from dust, he's in the image of God and he has the likeness of God. Let us make Adam in our image. I've got to write that down. Let us make, let me read it right. Let us make Adam. Now, your Bible will say make man. But, the, but that's not what he meant. He knew his name. Let us make Adam in our image. In our likeness. That is an astonishing statement. And I didn't do it right. Let me do it right. They have to be all capitalized. Let us make Adam in our image according to our likeness. This amazing statement and as in the custom of God, uh, it was said in a loud voice. He says it in a loud voice. He has a loud voice. He has a soft, still voice as well. But when he wants to make something obvious, he says it loudly. God uses his loud voice for select, unprecedented truths, a truth that he chooses to reveal Note that the loud voice of Christ from the cross, Matthew 27, 46, with a loud voice, God himself in the flesh shouts out Psalm 22. He probably, in my view, it's recorded Psalm 22, 1, but he likely did the entire psalm 
at least I think it is open to investigation. But if, even if you restrict, restricted it to Psalm 22.1, everyone that heard it knew that was Psalm 22.1. The only people that didn't know that or don't know that today is the contemporary church. They think that he's saying something that is biblically unsound. So he shouts out Psalm 22.1 in a loud voice. He also did it when he yielded up, yielded up his spirit. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Luke 23.46. Unbelievable verse that is. It is likely, if not certain, that God used his loud voice also when he said, From the cross I thirst, John 18.28, and it is finished, John 18.30. These are incomparable statements with unimaginable scope. They extend to levels that, and areas that we can't comprehend. We don't know what we don't know about those verses. That's how far away from us they are. Having said that, I submit that it is obvious that God on the cross was including the angelic realm when he's speaking. Why wouldn't he? He's he's including them and speaking to them, not just humanity, but also the unfallen and the fallen. They would be watching him. They're watching him. And they're listening to him. At this point, I don't know that they have a full understanding of who he is, but they know how powerful he is. And they're beginning, they catch on really fast. The crucifixion, again, he's talking to the angels. It's also applicable to humanity, but it's relevant to the angels and all living beings for that matter, as God so defines living beings. The crucifixion of Christ was imperative. It's mandatory. It's vital to the ending of the darkness that was Genesis 1-2. In other words, I'm saying that the crucifixion goes right here. And I think it is obvious that it does. I'm submitting that Genesis 126 is equal to Psalm 22. I'm throwing a bunch of stuff out here. I'll just go ahead and restrict it to 22.1. Just to make it easy for people. So, so almost everything he says from the cross, I thirst, it is finished, and Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Father, I commit my spirit, into your hands I commit my spirit, that is a triune passage. And, and Genesis one twenty six is a triune passage. Let us, our image, likeness, that's a declaration of triunity. And obviously they're, they're directly re- related. Let me put it this way. All triune events, passages, statements, all go back to Genesis 1.1. That's Chronister's law of the triunity. That's the first Elohim in Scripture is 1-1. One, one. The Bible begins with an Elohim, which is an us, which is an owl. Owl. Our. Sorry, not an owl. Owls go who. The first Elohim is 1-1 one, one Genesis, the plurality. Genesis one twenty six again, is the great us. Let us, our image, our likeness. 
And we find it again in Genesis 3.22. These are extraordinary revelations. Try to conceptualize the magnitude of them. Do not pass by. Stand in awe at Genesis 1.26 and Genesis 3.22. If you don't, if you're not stunned by them, then uh, unfortunately you haven't gathered them. Consider this possibility, if not likelihood. I mean, not possibility. It's obvious that 126 of Genesis, the great us, our image likeness verse, was not meant for who? He said it in a loud voice. Who was it not meant for? Obviously, Adam did not hear it. Because this is before he formed Adam. So who did he intend it for? He says it in, an, in a loud voice and it obviously, therefore, it was intended for the angelic host. So now we get to the, the questions. Of the angelic host, was it predominantly directed? What do I mean by that? Did he select, did one group have... Did he emphasize it for one group over the other? I have two groups. I have the fallen and I have the unfallen. Did the fallen think it was for them overwhelmingly? Or did the unfallen think it was for them overwhelmingly? In other words, did, did, it, have, uh, did it have emphasis on one group over the other? Or was it just equal? Again, when God says something, it is ubiquitous but it also is simultaneously specific or explicit. Who is accusing him? Who is challenging him? Who is declaring him to be evil? Who is declaring him to be unjust? Who is declaring him to be someone who cannot hold them to account? Who is he answering? And answering doesn't fit because he's outside of time. But I am an HTRP. I get to say it in those frames, right? I'm going to get a uniform at some point with all kinds of ribbons and things. And I'll have a trumpet. Yeah. It is my most humblest of humbler opinions that the angelic realm did not know until Genesis 1.26 when they heard the great us, our image likeness declaration. They did not know until Genesis 1.26 that God was triune. Let me repeat that. The first time the angelic host, fallen and unfallen, knew that God was triune is when he said, us, our, likeness, image. Up to that point, I do not believe that they had any idea. They did not know that God was three persons that are the whole. They did not know that there is a sameness, this oneness to God, but also distinction. Had no idea. Why would they have an idea? I'll get to that in a minute. I submit that this was a stunning uncovering for them. For both sides, the fallen and the unfallen. I've, over my so-called career, tried to envision the shock of the angels when they found this out. And I couldn't really grab it. I didn't have any real success. I obviously wasn't there. But I think that it, that there is no way to, to gain the gravity of it without seeing them. 
But I believe that it shook them. It was a revealing that uh, had an amazing impact. And if I am right, I'll take a little more time for that. If I am right, then Genesis 126, 322 explain Genesis 2, 7. What is 2-7? That is the formation of the body of Adam and the breath of the spirit of life put into it. And that means the triunity that is given in 126 and 1-1, but no one recognizes it in 1-1 until Moses delivered it as the us. He wrote it as as the plurality. But Genesis 1-26 explains the formation from the dust of Adam's body. And, of course, everything reaches back to 1-1 and therefore explains Genesis 1-3. What is Genesis 1-3? Darkness. Let me see if I can bring some symmetry here. Granting the thesis, that, that being that God had not divulged his triune nature until Genesis 1-26 to the angelic host then the first question would obviously be, why didn't he do it? Why not? Why then? Why Why now, if you want to think of it that See, there is an anatomy, there is a process here, and he's going in order. He's very mathematical. This is the time for this. I'm going to say it to the angelic host, because I didn't say it to Adam. He hasn't even been formed. Let us make Adam in our image and our likeness. Wow. First thing they got is a triunity. What's coming next? They had no idea. Image and likeness. Two great mysteries. Why did God wait, ultimately, is the question. To to recast the conditions. The angelic host was rent asunder. It was divided. Two-thirds unfallen, one-third fallen. The Ezekiel 28 mineral Eden was in utter darkness. It was drowned in water and there was, on, there was not one photon of light. It couldn't be found. It was absolutely utter, complete darkness. It couldn't be seen. You need photons and there was none. Completely concealed. One might suggest hidden. And I would argue, I wouldn't argue, I would agree with the one who would so suggest hidden. Because hidden means what? It brings with it what? Yes, that's right. Purpose and intention. As a, the, There's a shrouding of the mineral earth of Ezekiel 28. In other words, who did this? Who placed the earth in the secrecy? Why did he hide it? Because it's obvious who did it. Why did he do it? And clearly only God himself could hide the earth. From whom is he veiling the earth? Notice the word I use there. What are his choices? He likes to hide things. Psalm 10.1, why do you hide? Why do you hide yourself? Well, here's the earth. Do I think he hid it? Yes. Who did he hide it from? Specifically, again, which group has the predominance? Which group has the emphasis? It's explicit. Which one is he addressing? Both of them, it's ubiquitous again. Both of them are affected by the hiding of the mineral Eden of Ezekiel 28, 16 specifically. 16 is the abundance of your traffic. Uh, 28, 1 through 16. So, 
But which one? You only got two choices. Which one is is he hiding it from? Mostly. How's that? But he hides it from both. What event is traceable to this condition, to this act by God? Once again, the timeline question as it relates to the fall of Satan and the creation of Adam. That's why I keep saying to you, the timeline is so very important. <coughs> Allow me to provide a structural or a substratal principle. Notice I ask for permission. I, I, I have this. I don't need permission. I possess a holy, holy dry erase marker. All darkness, I gave you the rule that all triunities all throughout the Bible, and they're everywhere. They're overwhelmingly on the cross, but they're everywhere. They're Matthew 3, uh, Matthew 17. Uh, they're, they're everywhere. They all go back to Genesis 1-2. The earth was without form and void. I'm sorry, all triunities go back to 1-1. All darkness goes back to Genesis 1-2. lost my train of thought again. All darkness goes back to the first darkness. The first darkness is the earth was without form and void, and darkness on the face of the earth. All darkness harkens back to the first darkness. So, as an example of the rule, Chronister's Law of Darkness, Revelation 16.10, what's that? That's the fifth bowl judgment. What's the fifth bowl judgment? That is when... God pours onto the throne of the Antichrist. The Antichrist has a kingdom, Babylon, and he has a throne. And he's operating and dominating the world from that kingdom. What does God do with the fifth bowl? It becomes the kingdom of the Antichrist, the kingdom of the Satan man, became full of darkness and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. He, he sends the kingdom, the throne area, if you will, the center of the, of the empire of the Antichrist. He puts it in utter darkness. All darkness goes back to Genesis 1-2. Who was the king of Eden? Who was the king of the earth? Ezekiel 28. He put the the throne of Satan, if you will, the kingdom of Satan into utter darkness and hid it. Couldn't see it. Now the, the hiding is a result of the darkness, as we discussed last week. They gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pain and their sores and did not repent of their deeds. The darkness did not affect them. They're in complete darkness. They have boils and sores and they're they're grinding their teeth and, and biting their tongues because of the pain does not affect them. Hopefully you have detected the pattern. The tribulational kingdom of the Satan man Antichrist is in utter darkness separated from the light. Jesus God is the light of life. He's the light of the world. Satan, is, uh, that's John eight twelve. Satan is the darkness. Christ is the light. John 3.19, light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Included with this thick, absolute darkness of the fifth bowl judgment is this tongue-biting, gnawing pain, loathsome boils, yet none repent. Why don't they repent? They love the darkness. Understanding why they reject Christ and they love wickedness is, is quite valuable. Why do people love evil? Because they do. 
If only we had time, but we don't have time for that question as usual. Now, the fifth bowl judgment without controversy is sending us back to Genesis 1, 2 through 5 where he separates the darkness from the light. He brings light to the darkness and he divides it. So we have division. Also Mark 15, 13, the darkness of the sixth hour until the ninth hour. What was dark from the sixth hour to the ninth hour? The world was dark. Why? Because Christ was, that, that was the crucifixion of, of, of uh, Christ. Now, we know for sure that it covered the nation of Israel. How much of the world it covered, we cannot know. But for certain, it covered the nation of Israel. And at the ninth hour, the Lord God Almighty himself cries out in a loud voice, Psalm 22.1, the hind of the morning, the deer of the dawn. He, he uses that metaphor at the, at the end of the, of the darkness. The second person of the triune Godhead speaks in a loud voice. How loud do you think it was? 1533 is a triune verse again. So it's going back to 1.1 and 126 and 322. (coughs) Do not take out a triune verse and try to isolate it. That's an an error. All triune verses return to Genesis 1.1, 126 and 322. Again, they're the us verses, the our image, our likeness, one of the us, triune, that's a triune rule, can't beat it in enough. And that explains why God waited to communicate it. His us, his triune nature to the angels. Again, why did he wait? Who is he waiting for? Two-thirds of the angels rejoiced and shouted with joy when they found out that the earth was unveiled. Two-thirds of the angels rejoiced and shouted with joy when they found out that God was triune. So they fit together. The rending of the veil of the darkness over the earth. Uh, Job 38 says, One-third did not rejoice because they loved the darkness. That would be the fallen. Heretofore, the fallen had the illusion of victory until God did what he did in Genesis 1. The fallen thought that they were winning. They thought that they had at least brokered a stalemate. The lie of Satan had been corroborative. In other words, it had corroborative evidence to it. Because what? The earth was gone. Ezekiel 28 was gone. The Ezekiel 28 mineral garden had been extinguished or destroyed, removed from existence. Or so they thought. Or so it seemed. As you know, God does not annihilate information. Information will not be destroyed. He's the, he does not annihilate anything. He's the great physician. Jesus Christ says, Luke 5.31, He is the great physician. He heals the sick. Christ seeks to heal. He calls sinner to repentance. Sinners to repentance. Second Peter three nine. Jesus Christ is the long suffering, not willing that any should perish. Great healing physician. That's who he is. That's what he's doing in Genesis one. He's the resurrector and the life. John eleven twenty five. There's no one who resurrects but him, and there is no one who is the light of life but him. Christ alone is the one. There is none other. That is not popular to say. But there is no hope of resurrection or life any other place, any other person. He's the only one that has it. He's the only one that can do it. No one else, everyone else lies. 
He's not lying. Do you believe him or not? So the revealing of the triune nature of, of the one God, Deuteronomy 6.4, at Genesis 1.26, to the angelic host, obviously was done to announce the solution to the darkness that had taken, that had come to the earth. Satan did not perceive that God was three persons when he launched his rebellion. Oops. No do-overs here. That's why God hid it. Had Satan known about the triune nature of God, that might have affected his what? Free will decision making. So, there's your answer. Subtly concealed. Satan could not know. He did not realize that God was three that are one. Who could know it? It had to be revealed. No one could ever conceive it. No one could have deduced it. It's unthinkable. There is only one who is triune. And now we've got to figure out this likeness in this image. So we got the triune. Now we got likeness and image. I have duality in humanity. I have triunity in God. How do I? How does likeness and image fit with duality? And of course, God would proclaim it when He made the body of the first Adam from the dust of the earth, which is what He did. He gave them the duality of man, the triunity of God, and He said that man is in the likeness and the image of Me. There's no way Satan could have figured out that was coming, and there's no way Satan could figure out its relationship uh, to the solution for sin. The Holy Spirit through Paul lays it out beautifully in 1 Corinthians 15, 35-58. It's amazingly complex. I have a note to read it. We don't have time. Next week we'll do it. Anyway, the solution to sin is inseparable from the triunity of God. That's what I'm saying. Boiled it down. Revelation 13.8 tells us that that the Genesis 15, the take me, such a powerful verse, is outside of time. So 13.8 Revelation and the take me are timeless. They were thought before time was, was, was instituted. The angels are inside of time. Now let's consider angels and mankind really fast. Making the body of Adam from the dust of the earth is within the triune verse of Genesis 1.26. I hope I've done that. The angels heard God say it. He spoke it aloud in a loud voice. He intended for them to know that he tied his threefold nature to the body of Adam. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. So the making of the body from dust is tied to the triune nature. The triune nature has to be. It has to be. I hope you can figure out why that is. And he ties it not only to the body of Adam, but to the breath of the spirit of life that he would breathe into Adam. It is certain, in my opinion, that this was a logical advancement from the unveiling of the earth that was in darkness and in covered in water. Therefore, it's a proof that a solution to darkness could and would be initiated. Psalm 10, 1 through 3, 13, again. The questions of Psalm 10.1, the assertions of Satan at Psalm 10.6, all of that will be proved to be deceit. In other words, Satan's assertions that God cannot judge me because there is no free will 
that darkness can prevail because darkness has to prevail. You have to love darkness because loving darkness is loving free will. All of that stuff is going to be tested and found to be baseless and irrational. God tested Satan's lie. Do you remember I asked a while back, why does God test? What is he testing for? What's the purpose of his test? He tested his lie. Where did he test it? How did he test it? Hopefully it's obvious why he tested. Why is it evil then to test God? Exodus 17.7 So eventually this all begins to collapse. The mocking, the sneering of the wicked is going to end when the results of the testing that God has done of the premise is complete. And so what we're watching is this bombardment against this sneering, mocking evil. He's just blasting it, hitting it with the biggest baseball bat, teeing it up and smacking it. One at a time. I'm triune. Man is made in my image. Darkness is, is separated from the light. The waters are receded. The land is coming up. I am bang, 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 taking this on. Jude 9. Remember Jude 9 always comes up. Michael contending with Satan over Moses' body. And Michael defers. He has deference here. He has a deferral. Michael would not engage with Satan. He says, God rebuke you. And I said earlier that that's evidence that Michael had no idea how to handle this. He had... He would have known at this point the body of Adam. He would know the triunity of God, but how much of it had he put together? But he was unable or unwilling to rebuke Satan, probably both. Michael would not engage with Satan. It then becomes relevant at the least to to determine the timeline of Jude 9. Timeline being a verb. In other words, you timeline Jude 9. As of today, it's a verb, and forever. There's timelining, timelinational. So, when did Jude 9 occur? We know that Moses died 34-5 Deuteronomy. We know that God buried him 34-6 Deuteronomy. Jude 9 has got to be in between. So, how long is the interval of Deuteronomy 34-5 and 34-6? Barely get it out. How much time there? And uh, to put it in another way, what was the time interval between 34.5, 34.6? Was it a year? We always assume, well, died, we bury it. What if he waited? Does God wait? All the time. How long did he wait? 500 years? Begin timelining. A verb. Now, next, I guess. Examine Revelation 12, 7-12. War breaks out in heaven. Michael and his angels fight against the dragon and his angels. What's happening? What happened to this deference? What happened to this God rebuke you guy? All of a sudden, Michael uh, has changed tactics dramatically. What would explain that? Yeah. More evidence, more evidence, more evidence, more evidence is coming. Revelation 12.10, the loud voice of heaven, there's a shock, has something to say. 
He's, the one-third and the two-thirds are right there. And guess who else is there? The loud voice is there again. Now salvation and strength and kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. That's what he says. And that is a triune verse. And it goes back to Genesis 1, 1, 1, and 3.22. All triune verses go back there. Revelation 12.10, one of the most fantastic triune verses, because this war, I have a triune verse with this war being fought between Michael and Satan. No, Michael hadn't taken him on until 12.10, 12.7. The mocking, sneering accuser has been overcome by the blood of the Lamb, Revelation 12.11. Blood is a clue. That's a clue. Blood. A fantastic clue. Big clue. Solved everything. Could stop right there. Am I out of time? Okay, not quite. Okay. The unfallen angels rejoice that the dragon is cast down to the earth. They rejoice. They're rejoicing again. Put all your rejoices together. Did they rejoice over the triune? Yes. Did they rejoice over the image likeness? If they understood it, they did. Did they rejoice over the light coming and unveiling the earth? They did. Now they're rejoicing that the dragon has been thrown out of heaven. There are a bunch of reasons. He's not there anymore, but they were able to throw him out. Just to repeat this a little bit, Michael did not, could not refute Satan during the Deuteronomy 34.5-34.6 interval. At Revelation 12, Michael attacks. Wow. Again, Terry nailed it. Hopefully it got into the microphone. But you nailed it. What caused the modification of Michael? What do we call that? The modification of Michael dynamics. Aha! Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Took me all day to do that joke, didn't it? <laughs> okay. Angels and mankind are not the same. I know. Wow, what theological insight, what depth, what profundity. Throw money at this guy. I mean, for that. Where are you going to get that? I sound like one of these guys that he was talking about. Uh, Jacob. Okay. Angels, not the same as man. They're not in the image. They're not in the likeness of God. Angels do not have bodies made from the dust of the earth. That means they have what? It's a negative. They have no blood. No blood. Why don't they have blood? They don't. All angels were stunned by the revelation of the triunity of God, both unfallen and fallen. The unfallen shouted for joy. The fallen loved their wickedness. Finally, last thing, Mary Ann said, why was the body of Adam made from the dust of the earth? Wonderful question, fantastic question, but it's only half of the question. It's half a question. Because... How many dusts do I have? I got Genesis 2-7 dust. And I got Genesis 3-19 dust. I'm going to put those two dusts together to get a whole question. Why does the body return to dust? 
Moses' body didn't seem to return to dust. So why does the body, our bodies are going to return to dust when we physically die? Why? Could he have stored them someplace? Just put them in a condition, set them aside? They come from the dust and they return to the dust. Solve that. And there's another wonderful truth that is given to the angels. That's where we stop.